to the West Middle Earth SVG podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. My name is Charles. With me today are Richard, Ian, Alexander, and a special guest, Marcus Hammond. Marcus is joining us today to talk about Durin, King of Khazad-dûm. And then in our open topic, we'll be discussing well-rounded lists versus skewed lists. So first to start, just have a few questions for Marcus. How are you doing today? The guys here on the podcast, we haven't seen you in, I think, about two years now. Yeah, it's been a really long time. Uh, no, it's great to great to talk with you and see you guys. It's, I'm doing well. It, time goes so fast. Like I, It literally has been two years, I think, next week, because the event you guys had in, in BC was the last time I, I was able to, to roll dice with y'all. Yeah. So how is the community down in uh, Seattle where you play? Right now, it's it's fun. We have actually a, a handful of new players who I think through the pandemic, they bought armies and started painting. And now they're they're starting to come out and, and see how it is to actually play the, the game side of it. We've had Mitchell has put together so many events. We had, I think, three events between August and December, which had decent turnouts, nothing too crazy. But it's been an awesome time for people to come out and game. And um, everybody's been putting so much effort into building like their own terrain. So it seems like every single person has two or three tables that they now like custom built themselves. So it's been fun. I just show up and play. I don't build any terrain. Way too much effort. <laughs> I just uh, I just show up and play. It's, it's great. For listeners who don't know, Marcus is a part of the Duran Show podcast. Marcus, how is the Duran Show going? Are you guys still meeting up to record? A little bit. We we had a long hiatus. Matt actually went back to school, and so uh, it was just Mitchell and I for a while, and we decided to wait, and waiting turned into months. But with the, the start of the new year, we got back into recording. We recorded a couple episodes. I think we only released one, but we're back into a rhythm, and I think we'll be able to probably put out maybe one a month. So nothing too crazy, but uh, we're, we're not dropping off altogether, just a little bit reduced. And you guys started uh, doing battle reports on YouTube as well, right? Yeah, that's a ton of fun. Mitchell built a, a studio. We haven't, I don't think we've shown that one yet, but he bought, got a bunch of cameras and recorders and it's it's been fun. So we're going to try and do one podcast and one battle report per month and, and see how that goes. Uh, and that'll be our, our tentative goal for the year. Is the YouTube channel also just The Duran Show? It is. I think it's, uh, oh shoot, I should know this. Yes, it's The Duran Show. I have a somewhat controversial question, but which Hammond brother is the best at the game? Wow, coming in hot. Okay, so I might be disowned after I answer this. Um, I'm gonna go out on I'm gonna go out on a limb and say the fourth brother Myers. That you know, no, I'm joking. Although he is actually pretty good. Um, oh, you're doing this to me. Well, I can't say Matt because his head would get way too big and we would never like live it down. So I probably have to say Mitchell because he's like the only person I actually sweat when I play. He's he's pretty solid and he's so aggressive. Like I, I I'm like you'll never actually gonna try and pull this off. And like lo and behold, he's like all for it. He's like charging up the table, whatever it is. He's he's in the middle of the fray and he always pulls it out somehow. But uh, yeah, I'll say Mitchell. Hopefully he's not listening to this episode. <laughs> so you're joining us today to talk about Durin, King of Kazadum, and we know that you play a lot of Kazadum. Uh, so we're we're excited to. To have you on to talk about this profile. Yeah, I'm excited too. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's jump into our review of the Durin profile. Behold, the great realm. Wolf City of Dwarf There's an eye opener and no mistake. Okay, so Durin, King of Kazadum, he's 160 points. Uh, he's a dwarf, Kazadum, infantry hero of legend. He's move five, as all dwarfs are. Uh, fight six, four up shoot, which I don't believe it matters on this profile strength four defense nine three attack three wounds courage six and then might will fate is three three one he has a few pieces of war gear he has mithril armor durin's axe the ring of durin the crown of kings and the horn of zirak zigil so they're all pretty good special rules so durin's axe is master forge and he gets to re-roll a dual roll ring of durin 
he gets to re-roll a priority roll one time during the game. The crown is, so whenever he suffers a wound, he gets to roll a d6 on a 6. It's ignored. The horn gives him terror. He has heroic strike, defense, and challenge. And then, of course, he can have the option to add uh, hearth guards for two points per model on a Kazagard. And this is only in his warband. And hearth guard are just Kazagard with Burly. And he has Fearless. Okay, so as we've talked about in previous episodes before, Kazadoom is kind of split into two different armies. There's like the regular Kingdom of Kazadoom, and then there's uh, Kingdom of Moria. And I think when you go with the Kingdom of Kazadoom, it's because of this profile, it's because of the Durin profile. So, Marcus, do you generally prefer the Kingdom of Kazadoom side of this army or Kingdom of Moria? Oh, that's a good question. I love them both. I think if it's anything up to 800 points, I really like Kingdom of Khazad Doom. If it's anything 800 points or higher, I like Kingdom of Moria personally. In past weeks, we kind of talked about what makes like a list good in like lower points. So why do you say you would prefer the Kingdom of Khazad Doom in lower points? Is it because of Durin being like a bigger hero than Balin? Oh, that's a good question. So I think... Two things. So predominantly, and I'm sure we'll talk about this very quickly, the access to elite troops. I think Hearthguard at 13 points at lower levels are just some of the best infantry and can single-handedly swing a game here and there. You got a lot of sticky situations. So I like being able to bring a handful of those at lower point levels. Additionally, it's very rare to find somebody or something that's going to be able to kill Durin outright or really quickly at lower point levels. So if you if you run up against a mega hero, if you run up against a monster or a Lindor or just you know whoever the, the baddest person on the block is, Durin is usually going to be able to survive for a turn or two. And with defense, D9, like maybe three or four turns um, of consistently losing but not dying. So he's kind of a stalwart tank for sure. I find that's a really interesting take because I would think that Kazadoom might scale better than Kingdom of Moria at high points because you have the Warhorns, first of all. So like the more models you have, the more benefit from the Warhorn. And also I think just how pricey Durin is and Hearthguard are at higher points, you're able to take advantage of that more. And then also because Kingdom of Moria is unable to really ally, they're kind of red with everyone. So Kazadoom at high points, you have more of the ally option as well. So, but I think you do make a good point about him being like a bigger threat at lower points. It's just I hadn't thought of that before. Yeah, because in I think that's that's definitely the traditional take. I play I play doors fairly odd, so I don't. I'm sure everybody's flaming me right now for a very weird perspective. But anything higher than like 700 points, Durin, even though he's 160, which for a, for a hero of legend isn't horrible. There's a lot of heroes in that range. But at 160 points, he only moves five inches. It's easy to kite around him. It's hard for him to be aggressive against a hero that doesn't want to engage necessarily. And there are so many threats that can really put him on his back foot. Even at D9, it's amazing. And again, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a second. I think the models that are, for me, the models that are Defense 9 die the fastest, whether it's Vault Wardens, whether it's Durin. Like, it's amazing how how many bonuses and wounding bonuses somebody can bring to bear right when they need to and flash kill these types of models. And so I think at higher point levels for me, it's, it's harder for me to, to get value and keep Durin alive, as weird as that sounds. In one of our first episodes, we had an open topic called Overrated Heroes, and Durin is one of the ones that I... <laughs> oh, I remember this episode. I think I was listening. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think you can tell that I'm not the biggest fan of this profile. And I mean, there's a lot to like, right? He has a lot of different pieces of war gear that all kind of help him and help the army. And if you break him down point for point, he's really good value. If you value the war horn at around 30 points, you know, and, and he's, he's 160, that's not terrible. But I just think that it's because he's only movement five, no matter how like how good his combat abilities might be and how hard to kill he might be, he may end up just letting that all go to waste if the enemy just kind of avoids him all game because he's unable to get into the combats that he wants to get into. I think that kind of feeds into what Marcus was saying earlier about him being better at lower points because he's just harder to avoid. You know, like Charles, I really fascinated by that take actually just because i had never really thought of it that way 
my biggest reason for not taking Durin is just because I normally play just straightforward, just Kingdom of Moria by itself. And I'll, I'll find that Fallen, especially in larger games, can do a lot of the same things for 50 points cheaper. Sure, he doesn't have the Warhorn, but for me, it just comes down to that kind of comparison. But at lower points, with the Hearthguard upgrades, like if you can maneuver it well, then I can see him being worth it. It's just that the few games I've played with Durin, he being as slow as he is just kind of gets stuck in no man's land a lot, and he, he's tough to to make the most out of. But Something that I always think is fascinating, especially when, and I was thinking about this when you guys did your uh, most overrated heroes episode, and you were talking about Durin. I think Durin, because he's a hero of legend, because he's 160 points, I think people try to default him into a category of beat stick, war leader, um, linchpin, my win condition. And I think personally, and I'm, I'm not claiming to be the best dwarf player ever, so again, take this with a grain of salt. But I think Durin shines in a support category. He has one of the best support heroes. He's not going to be somebody that's going to go mono a mono toe-to-toe. He can. And I have like plenty of stories where Elendil, Glorfindel, Elrond, whoever it be, Thranduil will charge in, lose the duel. And with the wounding bonus, you know, Durin's doing three wounds back. I've seen, actually, in back-to-back turns, flying monsters go into Durin you know, win the duel, go to strike wounds, and all of the wounds that happen get blocked with the fury saves, the the six plus. I've seen that like three out of four wounds one time, you know, sixes pop up. So in spurts, he can be, he can be like a an incredible tar pit where people will invest a lot of resources or maybe even, maybe even compromise their position on the board, like give you board positioning just to try and kill your leader and they can't do it or they can't do it as quick as they needed to. And so I think because of that, he can have incredible value. I just, I don't think he's ever going to succeed or shine when he's trying to be the focal point of an army, literally leading the charge, trying to rack up all of his kills individually. Because again, at the end of the day, like Charles said, he moves five inches. He's not on a horse. He's not on any type of mount. He's got three attacks. He doesn't have any hero combating rules. He's just, he's just there. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. Like he's... It's kind of misleading given his stats because like the three attack, three wound, defense nine, fight six, you want to throw him in there. But I think you're right that he does come off like one of those more support heroes, which I would argue as well, though, in SPG, sometimes you feel like it's harder to make back the value kind of like wizards. Like they can be very good, but given their price tag, like a lot of times, like you're just not going to make your points back. And and I guess one thing I don't love about the profile is he has a lot of cool rules, but a lot of it seems a bit redundant to his stats or I guess what it does in the list. Like for example, Charles mentioned that the horn, you can value it at maybe like 30, 35 points. But to me, it's mostly just for the terror because you're going to take a lot of hearth guards, especially at low points. And if the majority of your list is hearth guards, like the Warhorn plus one courage isn't going to do much. And then, like, the Ring of Durin, like, again, it's a cool rule, but re-rolling a single priority, that doesn't even guarantee, you know, you getting it like the Palantir. And then, like, his saving a wound on a six, which, again, is a small, nice bonus, but he's defense nine. So how many wounds are you going to suffer that way? So I don't know. To me, it's like he has a lot of cool rules, but how much are they individually valued? I think a common comparison that I see is with Dane on Pig because of the same points. Dane is another incredible hero, incredible hero of legend. But, you know, Marcus is saying that he's not that kind of hero, like a Dane on pig, because he doesn't have that reach of having a mount. So, yeah, if you don't compare him with someone like Dane, then, you know, he's his own category, right? I think we're also dogging on him a little bit because, I mean, let's be honest, the reason anybody takes him and the reason you pay 160 points, though, is to access Hearthguard. And I know Hearthguard can be a controversial topic sometimes, but if you're playing against them, I, and I've played actually with him a lot recently. Almost every single army in the game, you end up having an elite troop, and especially if you spam them, you have an elite troop that is fight four, which is good. Strength four, D7. The D7 is amazing. One attack, but you're going to have lots of banners, and we'll talk about in the list how you get banners into your army in, in mass. But you have a piercing strike potential, so you can go to strength five if you need to. And you have the plus one to wound to burly. And your army bonus is rerolling ones to wound. And so in a majority of your games, when you win the fights, you're wounding on fours, re-rolling once. And so you got a 50-50 chance to wound with a one in six chance to re-roll your dice. 
And that is incredible. And especially if you can get a lot of two-on-ones where you have some dice advantage, you can start a waterfall. And again, Durin is locking down or being the tar pit, being sticky for whoever's trying to blitz him and, and taking up resources and your warriors start to just mow down. Played a lot of Return of the King Legendary Legion recently, and it's Hearthguard versus Army of the Dead, and it's it's not even a fair fight. They're fearless, they're charging in, they're killing, and they start the snowfall, the waterfall, whatever the snowball, whatever the word is. So in my mind, like Durin's, Durin's amazing as, like I said, in my opinion, as a support hero, not trying to be the, the focal point. And the hearth guarder, whereas the army shines, especially if you can wield a decent amount of them. So I like the hearth guard, but I don't think that they're maybe as amazing as you're saying, because two points for Burley is fairly costed. I don't feel like it's under costed. So I think it's nice to have it, but I would never consider it like something that's essential because dwarves to begin with, they don't have problems killing things, right? The strength four doors, <laughs> strength three doors have a different story, but yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Mm. I guess we'll move on to like our personal ratings of this profile. I really enjoyed hearing Marcus's reasons for why he why he picks Durin. Personally, I haven't really had much success whenever I I have taken him. I do think that he can be a good pick, but you kind of have to build your army around him. And I think at this point, I still would say that Kingdom of Moria is the better option to take in this army. So. I think I would put him kind of in the middle, like a like a five, because I think that he does bring a lot of tools, but at that price tag, it's a lot, it's hard to justify sometimes. That's a pretty savage rating. <laughs> I'm trying not to be offended here, but it's okay. I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> Charles, we literally just talked about how we pulled Dern apart back in season one. And you just turned around after a very good discussion about why he's good in a lot of situations. And you gave him a five. Even Some I can't things do never that. change. <laughs> even, 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 even I can't do that. That's like, the I hear, nicest. I, that's the nicest backhanded insult. Like, yeah, great comments. Horrible hero. <laughs> really like him. Really, really thought you had some great analysis. He's just mediocre. He's a five. No, he's he's like, let's invite the guy from the Durin show that loves Durin so he could be our special guest for the day. And then let's crap all over Durin. <laughs> I'm very sorry. I think I give him, you know, the, the argument that Marcus has made for low points is fantastic. And I could see him being, you know, an eight and a half in those situations, depending on the build. I think we'll go over that in a bit. But, you know, I, I can't be that rough on him. I'll give him a seven and a half. You know, it's a it's a reasonable midway rating. So I guess he kind of does tick a lot of the boxes that I usually have. But like we kind of talked about earlier, like a lot of his things are kind of redundant, like the uh, courage boost from the horn. Eh. Especially because like it doesn't even benefit him at all because he's already fearless. So it doesn't really do anything. Yeah, I don't know. That's all right. And then, I don't know, I think if he was at, like, 140, I'd probably give him a better score because, like we said earlier, the the Hearthguard upgrade costs a lot of points, so it really does start to cut into your numbers. So I think at 160 points, I'd probably give him, like, a 6. But if he was cheaper in points cost, I think that would jump up probably to, like, a 7 or an 8. Yeah, I think after a discussion, I do think he's a little bit better. I think if you're going to go low points, like, I guess I never thought about this because if it's like a 400 pointer where it's viable to just take Durin as one warband, I think <laughs> it's not the most exciting army to play, but it's going to be pretty savage. You, you take Durin and just a bunch of Hearthguard. I think Durin and 18 Hearthguard is something like 398, something like that. It's almost exactly 400. Oh, that, that's I've, a legendary legion. Been, I've been waiting for this moment, okay, guys? The first tournament we ever had in this edition of the game, I saw the Hearthguard upgrade. First time I'd ever seen it, and I went, we were having like a 400-point mini tournament at the local game store. And I was like, you know what? This is my time. I'm picking Durin and a bunch of Hearthguard. I did exactly that. I got crushed. Now, <laughs> now, now, the reason for that is, one, I did the exact thing that Marcus has just been telling us that he thinks is the major mistake with Durin, treating him very much like a, a run-around, kind of beat-up-everything, fantastic combat hero. Also because he was my only real—I think he was my only hero in that whole army. And I took 18 Hearthguard, so that meant I had no banner and no shields. Now, 
any dwarf army will tell you that if you have no banner and no shields, you're going to be in very deep trouble. I think I came up against two all-mounted forces because of the new Rohan bonuses that came out start of the, the edition, and they just ran circles around me. It was a, it was a painful day. And I think it really deterred me from Durin, but I think I'm going to have to give him another chance in different situations going forward. I've got to give him a shot. Durin and 18 Hearthguard is, is not a good build. Don't do it. You've got to have other things in there. Otherwise, it looks fun until you get charged. The banners are important. The dwarves are great until they roll ones. I think you actually kind of touched on something important there with the no shields thing, is that you kind of lose out on a tactic when you go with this kind of a build, and that's like a delaying tactic, because sometimes you want the game to go faster because you're dwarves and you only move five inches, and your guys just kill everything in front of them. And then you just you can come up short. I've seen it happen, and it's, you, there's nothing you can do about it with the with that kind of a build. Yeah, okay. some... yeah, I, I take it back. That's that's enough stories. Don't do that. Don't do Durin and 18 Hearthguard. <laughs> what am I talking about? But I think he is an interesting profile, even though I think I do slightly also prefer the Kingdom of Moria side, taking Ball in as the leader and going with more numbers. But yeah, he definitely does offer something different. And so I think I would give him maybe like a 7 out of 10. Ooh, Richard stole my number. Uh, yeah, I, I also would give him a 7 out of 10. And maybe controversial, but I I think he loses a little bit because, yeah, he can't be he can't be a, an ultimate champion. But I value the Khazad Guard upgraded to Arth Guard so much. So I, I love having that. I love having access to that additional tool in the army, so I, I value him pretty highly. Okay, so Marcus brought two lists with Durin today to share with us. One is a 600-point list, and one is a 800-point list. Do you mind starting out with a 600-point list? Just go over what's in your army list and kind of go over what your general strategy is. Sure. Okay, so in the 600-point version of this, I just have two war uh, two war bands, and I think we'll probably touch on this when we get to your secondary topic, Charles, about you know what's your strategy. I think it was balance versus I can't remember what the exact question was. Like balance versus skewed. Yeah, lists. that's what it was. I definitely I definitely value skewed when it comes to dwarves, and you'll see this here. So it's two war bands, a Durin, and a king's champion leads my second war band. But for Durin's war band, we have a composition of 10 Hearthguard, 2 Iron Guard, 2 Khazad Guard. So he's got a, a warband of himself and 14 Warriors. The King's Champions come in with, you know, the two banners, the two Heralds, and then 8 Khazad Guard and 2 Iron Guard. So there is no variation. There are no Warriors. There are no Bows. There's no Rangers, no Shields. This is high defense, high offense, and super elite. In terms of the general strategy, I think, again, leaning into the idea of I value the skewed dwarf list here, I think it, it depends on two things. Am I going up against a horde army or am I going up against a, a similar elite army? If I go up against elite army, my tactic generally is having Durin shield or try to be in a position where he can be a tar pit against whoever's coming back at me. So I can withstand, I can stop, I can maybe block the heroic combats, etc. Right. So I'm in a position to try and stall out the enemy's offensive power. Because in my mind, I'm thinking I am very confident that my 13, 11, or 15 point warriors will kill way more and way faster than whatever elite troops you have on your end. Right. Additionally, this is again somewhat weird, but I have the king's champion always fighting close within protection range of Durin on this army maybe a model between them, but they're always close. And the reason for that is the King's Champion by himself can be very threatening. And there's a lot of times where if somebody's trying to make an offensive push against me, the King's Champion is in position, even with, you know, two points of might, he can hero combat or come back and support Durin really easily. It just It's a lot of firepower. Like if most people would be nervous full on attacking Durin and a King's Champion, you know, fighting side by side. So, yeah, against more horde style or maybe lower value troops, I think the, the strategy here is be much more aggressive with the heroes because I want to try and rack up a kill count because I'm going to be fighting from a numbers advantage. I have 28 models, which is just under, I think, the typical average for a 600 point list. So in my mind, I need to get um, I need to get a, a kill advantage as quickly as possible. 
And that's why I love the Iron Guard in this list for four opportunities for some throwing weapons. And every once in a while, that throwing weapon kill before going into charge, again, really helps the snowball. I'm not sure if that answers your question about just general thought process here. Hi, yes, me here in the front row. Okay, things I love about this list. The Hearth Guard, the King's Champion, the two Heralds, and the King's Champion again. Reasons 1 through 10 to love this list, 1 to 9 is the King's Champion, and the 10th is Durin. I've I've talked enough in previous episodes about how much I love the King's Champion. When you were like, we're going to talk about how to get banners in this list, I'm like, I already I know the answer. <laughs> I, I can I can leave the chat now for a little bit and come back later because I know exactly where this conversation is going. It's definitely not my typical build of a list like this. I'll have to try it again because, like I said, the last time I built a list that looked anything like this, my whole army was like Harry Goatleaf being hit by that door where he gets squashed. That was the <laughs> whole list. My whole list was just getting squashed by a big wooden door. But I can see it working in, in certain situations. I'd, I'd worry, again, about the lack of shielding. Uh, just in any situation where you want to stall, I imagine it's it's a difficult thing to do, with the exception of Durin, because you don't have any shielding anywhere. But if you can be hyper-aggressive with it, maybe it'll work. I'd really like to know how you play, especially games where you have to move to objectives with this list, just because I find that the inability to shield almost makes that harder. When I see this list, I just can't help but compare, like, if I was building this 600-point list, but with Kingdom of Moria, what it would look like. And often I see Kaza Doom lists or Kingdom of Moya lists at like the high 30s for 600 points. So this is like a really elite kind of build where you take all elite troops. And it's an interesting strategy. And I think in certain scenario packs, it would do really well. But if you took Balin instead of Durin, you would probably have a good handful, maybe up to even half a Warband more models, I think. And you would have Heroic Marge. So I think in certain scenarios, you might, you might do better. It might not be as hard on you. But in those killy scenarios, this is kind of the list that is built for. Pretty much won't have any trouble fighting to the death, Lords of Battle, those kind of scenarios. But the ones where you have to move across the map or hold objectives, it might be a little bit harder. I think, I'm not sure about this one. I think this is uh, the kind of list that can do really well against some matchups and really struggle against others. Yeah, I think think this is um, very on topic with our open topic. This is a very skewed and heavily leaning kind of list. So I think it's very interesting. It's quite aggressive, I would say. I'm personally not the biggest fan of Iron Guard. I feel like they're often not as worth it, but it is kind of scary on a regular troop backed up by a banner. So you're essentially getting three attacks on the dual roll. But I can't help but think, you know, going alongside the Hearth Guard, if you took dwarves with shields, they would be defense seven, which would match up with the Hearth Guard. So makes them less of like you know easy targets when shooting because you know running up on your opponent if they have any sort of bows they're probably going to target the iron guard and also like if you're shielding you're also getting the two attacks plus the banner roll so it's essentially the same it's just you're definitely less aggressive you would probably go into the 30s for model count but again that's i guess that's straying more into the more well-rounded kind of build so this this is you know something you're trying to go really aggressive and i think it does a really good job of i think i would probably give this a fortitude though yeah i probably go the same um, hero fortitude i think in like a straight up fight this is it's probably like top tier but in a tournament setting you know you're going to have other kind of scenarios and that's where you'll struggle uh, yeah, I I, I, just, I think it also is quite uh, quite scenario dependent. And then the other thing on, on on having to split up in a lot of scenarios is like you said, you you usually like to keep the two heroes together. But if you do that, that means you're just gonna have a flank by itself with just Kazads there or just some Hearthguard. And if that's the case, even though they're really tough, they're just they're gonna get swamped if the enemy the the opposition has a hero there just from heroic moves and being able to set up combats and stuff. So yeah, I think it's probably a fortitude. Seems fair, but like Charles said, like depending on the scenario pack, it could easily jump up. If there's a lot of combaty ones, it could easily jump up to like to to a higher score. Yeah, I think it's a fortitude too. I'd... All right, Marcus, rebuttals. <laughs> Tell us why oh, we're wrong. <laughs> where do I start? Where do I start? Uh, no, no, you guys, you guys bring up good points. I think I'm, I'm guaranteed this will come up in this queue conversation. But when you run a list like this, absolutely, you are rolling the dice in a scenario in a tournament pack. 
based on what scenario you're getting. You can probably say half of the scenarios, so 18, nine out of 18, would favor combat-based armies, right? So on half of the scenarios, just generally speaking, half of your scenarios, you're going to have even money, right? And then there's probably a handful, one to three maybe, where you're going to have a significant advantage because of how you've built this. And then similarly, there's probably three to four to five where you're going to be at a significant disadvantage. And so some of this will be yeah, luckily draw on the on the scenario. If you pull Storm the Camp, Recon, seize the prize all in the same event pack, just <laughs> have fun, right? But I think people sleep on the fact that at 28 models, if you're careful in picking your matchups, it is not difficult. I found it is not difficult to even the model count advantage, right? You're not you're never you're not going full engagement. You're you're picking your your skirmishers on a flank, etc. You even the model count, and then all of a sudden when the model count's even and you have banners to help your elites re-roll, they can quickly sway, right? And even on objective base, you talk domination, capturing control, breakthrough, those types of you know traditional objective-based scenarios. If you can engage and force an engagement, even the model count, and then you do the traditional run back to the objectives or start to disperse to objectives, you're in the realm of your enemy's breaking, you're fearless, you're not running away, right? The only people in your army that are taking courage tests have a warhorn to help them stick around. So you have significant staying power. And so late game, it actually is, I found, it's actually super beneficial to be fighting skirmish battles off in no man's land because more than likely, you're going to be the last person standing. But again, like this can be easily crushed if you hit the all-mounted, right? You've got lances coming at you. You you don't get to pick your battles. Like, like any list, this can definitely backfire. The other thing, I think, Richard, you said this, the the Iron Guard. I agree that the D6 is unfortunate because it kind of creates a chink in the armor. But the Iron Guard with the throwing weapons, more so it's the additional attacks. So when you're doing two-on-one, when you're trying to get these engagements or these these battles, you're picking your battles, when you can have a Hearth Guard fight, maybe a shield wall, right? So you're charging somebody with a spear support, but you can get an Iron Guard to support. It's two extra dice to help your punching power win the duel, so you get a kill. It's the occasional throwing weapon, but most importantly, in my opinion, is the Iron Guard, I think, really help your heroes who are not mounted with your heroic combat likelihood. Each of these heroes are only rolling three dice, right? Three dice with a banner plus Durin's Axe. But it is so easy to to flop a, a heroic combat dual roll. And maybe the heroic combat, you don't have a lot of might in this army. Heroic combats are very precious. If you if you spend the resources, you've got to have it go off. And having an Iron Guard be the second model in a combat to help get your hero additional dice to win the duel, I think is just incredibly valuable, personally. Yeah, I'll give you the point on the Iron Guard with the throwing weapons. And I actually do like the extended range on that, just because... I found that dwarves are often taken advantage of when they don't take enough range weapons. And playing Ian's, you know, Hobbit dwarves, he he takes mass throwing weapons. And it's actually a huge difference maker because then you can't really get kited, right? So, yeah, I think it does give your list a bit more flexibility. Okay, Marcus, uh, do you want to go over your next list, the 800-point list, and your strategy around that one? Absolutely. But this one comes with a disclaimer. There's a couple of disclaimers that I've got to gotta go through. So first, Lord of the Rings dwarves, old school dwarves. I have never laughed more than when I see these dwarves fail courage tests, right? You think, how can you fail a courage test? A charge, stand fast, whatever it is. You've got a warhorn. It's impossible, right? Most of these elites are base courage four up to five. The only models that ever fail more than 75% of the time for me are dwarves. And so my philosophy is I never want to take a courage test when I don't have to. And so similar to the 600 point list, you're going to see a lot of elites. And more importantly, you're going to see a lot of bodyguard models, the Kazakh Guard, Hearth Guard. Because again, when I'm building these crazy elite, I'm so skewed on the fact that when I want to go for an offensive blitz, I cannot have a model stalling out. I cannot have a model failing a courage test. And um, this is a shout out to Mitchell and his fabulous idea for bringing Vault Wardens to Las Vegas. They failed 85% of all courage tests required. The frontline shield, which stalled out so many of our plans and almost cost us two games, Mitchell. So as a result, this list is very similar to what we brought to Las Vegas, the doubles, minus all of the non-fearless bodyguard models. So with that being said, this one, um, very similar. The big difference is there's a third warband, and I brought a Dwarf King to lead the third warband. So uh, warband one, it's Durin. 
He is flanked by 13 uh, Hearth Guard and five Iron Guard. So he's actually got a full warband. This is 18, which is uh, kind of rare. 18 models in his warband. Uh, number two, King's Champion. Uh, again, I love the idea of bringing two banners. He's flanked by six Kaz Guard and two Iron Guard in his warband. So he's got, what is that? That's 11 total models. And 10 Warriors plus the Heralds in his. And then Warband 3 is the Dwarf King. The Dwarf King is flanked by five Kaz's Guard and two Iron Guard. So a couple high-level thoughts here. One, at 800 points, typically I try to find ways to play around having to bring March because the additional King's Champion, if you can find the points, amazing. However, at 800 points, it's just it's too likely you're going to have something where you need a March. You're not Kingdom of Moria. You don't have the amazing ball and who has March already, so... I think the Dwarf King adds a lot of value to give you just a little bit of a movement buff when you need it the most. And then Iron Guard, again, kind of sprinkled throughout with a heavy contingent of Iron Guard in Durin's Warbane. And I'll talk about this in a second. And then the two banners just help these elite get their value. The odds of you losing a lot of dual rolls just goes, goes down so much when you have two banners in your army. But they almost seem like they're free because they come with the King's Champion. So... What was I going to say? Oh, the Iron Guard. So the reason you guys are probably going to ask this, because there is some space in the Dwarf King's Warband to absorb more models, and especially with him being a hero of valor now, I am intentionally overloading Durin's Warband for one reason. There's not a lot of might in this army. And when I play 800 points with these dwarves, I have run into major problems in Maelstrom deployments, where I don't get to castle up, I don't get to pick and choose where my, my models are deploying, especially if I roll poorly. And so with this, the thought process here is I want enough models to protect against something just absolutely getting, you know, hit by a bus as soon as they come on the board. But I want to be able to deploy the Dwarf King. I want to be able to then deploy the King's Champion. And lastly, I want to be able to deploy Durin because with Durin at the third warband, I'll burn might to help him come on to a, a boardage where I need him with a firepower to protect something that I think is valuable. So I'm not going to have the Dwarf King or King's Champion, you know, roll a two, roll a three, back to back to turns and they get stuck out by themselves. At least they have a chance to, to bring throwing weapons, firepower, you know, back to the whole list. So yeah, that's the 800 points. The big thing, and I didn't call this out uh, I think earlier, there's 38 models here. So again, just a little bit on the elite side, but 38 almost fearless, very punchy doors. So uh, this reminds me of a list that you brought to an event up here the last time we played games together a couple of years ago. You went with the Kingdom of Moria, so you had a higher model count. But again, it was a similar composition where it was like all Hearthguard and Ironguard. And, you know, you winning against me in, in that game. But you did tell me that you struggled to close in at the beginning of the game when it had catapults. And I kind of see like a similar kind of strengths and weaknesses with this list. There are certain lists uh, where they will take advantage of the fact that you don't have bows and because you're low movement. But the difference between this one and the, your first list is now you have a Heroic March. So you're able to mitigate that weakness a little bit. It kind of feels like a bigger version of the previous list where this one's also really combat focused and focused on like more Achilles scenarios. So like I think because you've added that utility of the movement, I do like this one better. By the same time, I feel like if this was a Kingdom of Moria list, you'd be in the 40s, and I feel like that list would be a lot more scary. And you would have the numbers where if you were facing like a shooty list, you wouldn't be worried about taking a few losses on your way in. Whereas this one, if you were to lose like six or eight models from shooting before you go into combat, you're most likely going to be outnumbered. So yeah, while I like this one more than your previous list, I'd probably give it like same rating, Hero for it too. So I think we all really like the uh, the Dwarf King as a pick. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's very shocking to say just because, you know, like what he brings is another fight six model is very handy. And then he has two might that you can use either for March, which is also very, very handy. And then it also above like from your 600 point list, it means you can have a separate force going off somewhere with one of the heroes and another banner. And it just gives you a lot more flexibility on the tabletop. So you're not everything's not concentrated in one spot. Yeah, so I, I think I agree with Charles. I actually do like this one more than the 600 because you just kind of get the extra little bit. Of, like it's, it's a bit more well-rounded. I think I'd probably give it a, a Valor. I think so. I feel like this could definitely do some pretty good damage. Shout out for the first Valor rating. <laughs> I like how you doubled down and just extrapolated your 600-point list. You were like, I don't like the regular Dwarf Warrior models. So I'm still not going to take them, no matter <laughs> no matter how many points I get. 
yeah, I, I definitely think this one, even though it's still skewed, it's it's much better with the addition of March, like the other two guys said. And and I think that fills out like a lot of the weaknesses, honestly, because, you know, the shooting, the objective capturing, like all of that, it covers a lot of the scenarios that you said that you're not looking forward to play against in the 600 point list, right? Because in the 600 point list, you're only banking on the combat oriented scenarios. But now, even if you're not favored, I think you pretty much have always have a fighting chance. Like, you know, whether it's reconnoiter or like hold ground, you might be slightly unfavored, but I still feel like with the Dwarf King, you have a chance. So, and honestly, 38 models, maybe it's because like our meta is a little bit less hoardy than what I've seen often in like the States and the tournaments there. I actually think 38 at 800 is like more than enough. So yeah, it's got to be, I, I would give this like a high valor as, you know, it's it's quite strong in my opinion. Yeah, I think seeing the first list, I was like, this is this is Marcus's uh, 600 point list, but with a Dwarf King and a few more models. That's it. That's all it is. It's the same thing. But the Dwarf King to me is just one of the best support picks in the whole game. He doesn't go down easily. And if you can plug him just into troops, he can actually sit there and have a pretty solid game. So to me, I I quite like this list. So I also think it's a Valor. That's three Valors on this list. That's a very good rating. Once you get past Charles, it it gets easier. The rest of us are a little bit better rating than, than Charles. Well, I got a question for you, Marcus. Is there ever a time that you take bows with dwarves? Never. Not one single scenario. You can tell me the scenarios I'm going to play ahead of time, and I will not take Dwarf Bowman for a couple reasons. One is I just I've been burned with good army shooting, right? So you either are going to get the matchups where it's I'm going to be in combat, and then the, the Dwarf Bowmen are going to be in combat anyways. You can't shoot into combats, which is what I love to do with evil armies. But again, this is going to go into the skew conversation. I feel like dwarves, especially the Kingdom of Cause of Doom, have a couple strengths, right? The army bonus is reroll ones in combat. It's a fantastic army bonus, in my opinion. You want to be in combat. And so anything that you're doing to avoid getting to combat, yeah, you could get shot. You could lose five to eight models. Or because when I played Charles, I think Charles killed 17 doors with catapults before we even got into the first combat. Like things can go horrible. But um, once you get to combat, I, I want to double down on what they're good at. Yeah, this is a good segue into our open topic. today is we'll be comparing balanced lists versus skewed lists. I guess just to start this conversation, in like the North American scene at least, which one do you think you see more out of competitive players? Balanced lists, they're lists that kind of have average or above average or like it has like all the utilities you need to kind of cover your army's weaknesses and to have answers for everything or most things that you would see at a tournament and be able to have solutions and tools to get objectives in every scenario in the match playbook. Whereas skewed lists are more like sort of like what we were talking about earlier with Marcus lists, where you double down on a specific strength of your army, or if your army composition is a little more unusual, if it lacks certain aspects, like it lacks shooting, for example, or march or heroic strike, or something that you would see that's common in most armies. We can take a stab at this. I think with the exception of armies that are built around shooting, so maybe that we've called that a skewed list, I'm not sure. With the exception of that, I think a significant majority of any player that I've played against is going to fall into the balanced realm. Yeah, I have heard, you know, the unexpected podcast talk briefly about this subject and it seems like they have a few players there. They're very competitive, mostly on the East Coast of the States, and they seem to really like the skewed sort of strategy. I guess what I could see is that, like, I feel like it depends on what your goal is at a tournament. To me, if I think you're going for gold and nothing else, you would, in a sense, have a better shot going for the more skewed. 
you might not make it to the final match like as often as if you took you know like a more balanced list but i think once you get there you do improve your chances of winning so obviously you know if you if you take a more well-rounded list it's it's more the conservative approach right so you're giving yourself the chance to win every single game i think most likely you'll do very well up until your final couple matches or if you come you know against a player who is a similar skill level than you but they have a more skewed list that actually matches up well against your army list or in the scenario then i think it gets really tough for you and that usually you know if it's like a six game tournament that probably happens at least once so knowing that what are you guys' general like thought process when you're going into a tournament and writing a list like for example like i know ian is in, in our group here at least is known for like the person who likes to bring like a well-balanced list is your goal kind of to be able to win every scenario even if it's just like a minor win but like try to not have a loss or is it actually to try to like podium like do you have like a specific mindset in mind when you're preparing for a tournament I just like being able to like compete in any scenario against any like in any kind of matchup because you know like I think we've all we've all been there where you you show up at the table you look at the scenario you look at the opposing army and go hmm I've got like 20% chance to win this and I hate that feeling that's horrible for me so I like it to you know keep it at least as 50-50 as possible in terms of that kind of a thing and then just go from there and hopefully I have better strategy I guess <laughs> hopefully <laughs> But that that does change with the way tournament packs are organized for me personally. If it's one where it's always randomly drawing scenarios, then 100% I want something that I think can cover everything because I just don't know what's going to happen. If it's a selected pack, I'm way more open to going on some kind of a skew kind of a list. I mean, I'm always partial to a more balanced list. Maybe it's because I feel safer in knowing that I can come out in most scenarios, like Ian said at the start, and be able to compete in just about every possible scenario. But at the same time, there's definitely an aspect of playing a very skewed list. And you see this a lot with Richard. He'll have none of something and a ton of the other and just walk through somebody else's army. So it's difficult to tell. I'm going to throw a metaphorical grenade in for you guys. So something that I've been thinking about this question, especially on, Ian, what you are saying, the, the, the tournaments that are randomly drawn and you try to build everything. I have had the darndest time correctly guessing what the boards look like. So, for instance, if I'm trying to, to build a well-balanced list and I want to be able to move and I show up to a table and it's basically the barren wasteland, and I'm against Rangers of Athelion. It's kind of like the best laid plans out the window. And so maybe it's just personal bias and I've been burned, but I'd be curious to see what you guys think. Like, how comfortable are you trying to think about your army, your potential opponent's army, combined with the scenario? There's three variables, adding the fourth variable about what is your board going to look like? I just wouldn't try to play 4D chess. 3D chess is enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, yeah, I, I don't know if I, if I go so far as to worry about tables beforehand because, you know, things things can change. I mean, you know, at, at our events, it's, it's not uncommon, you know, because we have a lot of, like, similar boards. And if we get the same people playing at the top three tables for, you know, first three rounds, then, you know, maybe for the last two, we'll switch, we'll invert the rankings. So now the top three people are playing on table, you know, 10, 11, 12. I, I don't know how much I would read into that. Yeah, because there will be specific tables that you would prefer not to play on. But the thing is, not only do you not know if you're going to play on them or not, you also don't know that if you were, who you would play against. And you might play against another list that's just as bad on that table as you are. And you're equally disadvantaged, and it ends up being okay. So I try not to think ahead that much when it comes to terrain. Kind of start worrying only after you know who your opponent is and you're starting to deploy. I think um, another point when it comes to skewed versus balanced is I think it depends on what kind of list that you're running. So, you know, I believe most Lord of the Rings players choose an army based on at least starting out what they like and what they think is cool. And I think if you're not going with one of the massive big lists like Minas Tirith, Mordor, Isengard, sometimes you don't really have a choice. 
So, you know, if you're going to, if you really want to play Goblin Town or, you know, like, or like Kazadoom, um, like we discussed today, it kind of works against you if, you know, you try to really play a really balanced list. And I think where Marcus has a point is sometimes, you know, you just got to lean into something harder if that's what your army is built for. You know, you, you don't really want to, like, try to build a more, like, balanced Goblin Town list. Like, I think we've all seen, like, these weird allies sometimes thrown in the Goblin Town. I don't know if that's better, to be honest, you know, against, <laughs> you might as well just play pure Goblin Town, you know, and you're definitely going to be weak in some scenarios, but I think that's fine. I think a lot of times a skewed list will have answers for things that you might not be able to see. Like they kind of deal with specific issues in their own way. So for example, like for Goblin Town, they don't have cavalry, everything moves five inches, but they have the mercenary. Uh, They have the numbers to be able to swarm objectives, whereas most armies don't have that kind of numbers. So it doesn't mean that they struggle in mobility scenarios. In fact, I think they're very good. Assault upon Helm's Deep Legendary Legion. They don't have Heroic Strike. They don't have named heroes. It doesn't mean that they can't deal with big enemy heroes. They just deal with it differently. They have the Demolition Charge. They have Ballistas to do that. As a player who gravitates towards skewed lists, you just have to find like solutions to certain weaknesses that you might have or problems that you might face against uh, specific opponents. You just have to solve it in a different way. I love what you said right there, Charles, because like I 100% agree. Like there is such thing as building a balanced list that does not have a balanced army composition, right? Because there are tactics you can use and deploy. There are strategies you can use and deploy. So it's almost like when you're building a list, you can maybe have skewed in terms of like my dwarf, where it's everything's super elite and I'm just murder, death, kill. But I also have answers in the back of my head in terms of tactics to cover some of the weaknesses. Like maybe it's going to be challenging for command the battlefield, but there's a couple things you can do to give yourself an advantage, right? You can get the same result of having a well-balanced march, captain, strike, numbers, all of the things, banner, shields. You can get some of the same advantages of that perfectly traditional balanced list just by using, you know, non-model tactics or resources. Yeah, and I think you did that in your list by reallocating the warband, putting more with Durin, because you're saying, you know, you're kind of disadvantaged your maelstrom with your list, and that's one way to mitigate it. One other thing with skew lists is I think sometimes the advantage of bringing like something that's uncommon or something that people aren't familiar with, like used to fighting, can also be an advantage. I don't know. I say never underestimate the advantage of surprising your opponent. You can't really measure that or see it on paper, but on the table, it's like sometimes your opponent won't know how to deal with it and they might be more prone to making mistakes. And also, I think just going into a game, knowing what your weaknesses are, like which games you you might lose and being okay with it. So like, for example, a couple of years ago, we went to Nova and I brought like a Fountain Court heavy Minas Tirith list. When Reconnoiter came up, I knew I was probably going to lose that one. But if I had not leaned so far into like the Fountain Court spam, I don't know if I would have done as well in my other five games. So like I was sacrificing being able to win a mobility scenario in order to be better at the other ones, the objective ones and the combat ones. So there's a certain amount of trade-off. And I think just knowing what you're trading for your strengths is really important too when you decide to go for a skewed list. Charles, I don't think you can call 100% of non-hero model build Fountain Court heavy. Like, that's all Fountain Court. There's nothing. <laughs> that's just pure Fountain Court. I had a few knights in there, but oh, okay. warriors. Allegedly. <laughs> Your token menace here spearman, is that what it was? <laughs> I had enough for a shield wall. Good point on the psychological thing. I mean... Even if I'm favored, like, I just absolutely hate coming up against, like, a, you know, a two-mama-kill 800-point list or, you know, Sauron or, oh, like, brutal. Well, that's the thing also about skew lists is, like, sometimes you can get diced by them super hard, even if you play well against them. Like, I feel like the, the, the chances of you getting, like, just losing because of they get a few good dice rolls shoots up, like, way higher. Sometimes I think you really have to do it a lot in order to get the hang of building a good skewed list because I don't do it a lot. And when I go out and build a list that looks anything like the two that you brought today, 
I just get walked over. So it's really a matter of experience with building a list that has one very specific strength. If you don't do it a lot, it's difficult. But I think once you get experience with it, it helps a lot. Do you guys think that people who lean towards like a balanced list are more like the reactive kind of player where they like to see what their opponent has and then kind of base their strategy on after they know who their opponent is? Meanwhile, like a skewed list, they usually will know their strengths. So they like typically are the aggressor and they're the one that is like proactive. Like, do you think it depends on like a person's play style, whether they react to their opponent or the one that likes being the aggressor? Exhibit A, Richard. He knows exactly what his strength is every time, and he does not stray from that whatsoever. He's just like, what? I have a spider queen and two broodlings? Guess who's getting charged this turn, even though we started two feet apart? That guy. Every time, no matter how I see it coming, I get charged, and it hurts. So, in a way, I think once you've built a good skewed list, it's almost easier in a lot of ways than playing a, a decent balanced list, just because... Like Charles just said, I will get to a table and look across the board and think, okay, how do I deal with my opponent's army? How do I alter my game plan to suit this? Whereas when you come to a tournament with a skewed list, you're like, it doesn't matter what my opponent has, what their game plan is. I have one game plan, and it's go out and execute this exact play style. Okay, so I'd like to refute Alex's accusations first. I deny all claims of being a skewed player. Uh, <laughs> uh, I actually think Charles is on the money where I think it does come to your play style. I think I am more of a reactive player. And I I don't think taking a spider queen means it's skewed. I mean, I, I actually think it's the opposite. I think the reason why I take so many yellow alliances is because I'm trying to balance my list and fit an answer to everything. You know, I I always take my marches, you know, I always take some sort of assassin or like beat stick, you know, some sort of defensive mechanism, like either like blinding light or, you know, spider broodlings, you know. So, yeah, I just wanted to jump in there and defend my good name. Switching slightly. I'm curious as to how you guys, how you start building skewless. Because personally, whenever I end up kind of running one that's like funky or skewed, it's usually just because I like, I have an idea and I'm like, oh, I like this idea. I wonder if it'll work. And then I go from there and then I build a list. I'm like, oh, okay, this is a little weird, but I want to try and see, like, see if it works, see if it catches anybody off guard. But like, it's not like a deliberate thing where I'm like, oh, I want to go out and make a list that's super skewed because why not? Okay, Ian, I'm going to take you back about five, six years and I'll tell you exactly how I start a skewed list. Okay, so we're going to start with Lurts. And then with Lurts, you're just going to take my entire collection of Berserkers and you're going to put it in there. Boom, skewed list. I mean, I think this is the classic example of perspective because I hear that and I say, man, what a balanced list. You have a good hero, you've got a lot of might, you got a good courage value, lots of attacks, fury saves. Like, that just sounds very balanced to me. Great list. So I think the way I think about it, Ian, is. When you're building a list, I know as a player who likes balanced lists, they might think like, okay, I need a little bit of this so that when this situation comes up, I can deal with it and I need a little bit of this. And if you think outside of that box, you can use those points that you would have spent on those utilities on what your central idea for the list you're trying to build. So for example, a while back you had a list where you had a lot of like three attack heroes in the list and that was your list idea. Like a more skewed version of it is what if I double down and instead of taking that blinding light in my list to protect me from shooting as I closed in, I add in another warband of hard-hitting warriors or I add in a whole bunch of cav that will make my impact even greater when I do charge in. I use those points on something that would strengthen my strength. That's how I would think of it if I was in your shoes. I probably have a really boring way of like coming up with a skew idea. I think for me, it's two things. When I'm playing an army, there will either be a noticeable weak link, and I'm I'm not dogging on this intentionally, but for me personally, like this is serious. Dwarf Warriors, classic example. I have run into so many situations where they got abused in consistent, you know, scenarios that frustrated me. And so as a result, my thought process is I want to replace this for something that doesn't get abused. And then that gravitates into a more concentrated, you know, idea, which in this case, you know, constant guard. The other thing, and I, I, you know, I hear you guys talk about this all the time, 
making your points back, which is actually really hard to do when you talk about expensive models right over the course of a game. If I find something where there is a surprisingly... <clears throat> oh, okay. Okay. Shots fired. I'm going to keep going. When, uh, when I find a model that consistently averages their points or even exceeds their points... For me, that is like super fascinating. And so I'll, I'll start intentionally exploring with doubling down because if, if one cave troll can make his points back consistently for me, what do two cave trolls do? What do three cave trolls do? Or recently what I did was what do four cave trolls do? And so it's it's experimenting with those crazy ideas and, and finding synergies and finding a balance within your heavy concentration of you know what you're trying to exploit. I mean, I just, I feel like you guys are, you're setting up the gauntlet. So when the borders open, I'm pretty sure I've I've already enlisted all of my brothers. We've got literally four versions of Durin. We're going to show up to your next tournament. It's going to be all of the Hammond brothers. We're each going to have a different variation of Khazad Doom. But the one constant, there will be a Durin in every single army. And we're going to come throw down. We're going to come We're going to come see how easy it is to get points back. So this is when um, taking black shields will be worth it. We'll have uh, all the all the hatred dwarf. <laughs> Okay, so this is after you were talking so much crap about me. And so funny story, I lost a tournament. Top table, last game, I lost a tournament by one VP. A tie, would, I would have won handily, but I lost, got a minor loss. The reason I lost is my opponent had two archers in his entire army. With one of his archers, he shot at an iron guard who was positioned behind Durin and with the strength two bow on the only shot attempt of the game, wounded Durin. I failed my fury, failed my fate, and he got a victory point for wounding the enemy leader. Lost the tournament because of that. The other thing that is hilarious, I came within two kills of losing contests of champions against an all-Moria list where the enemy hero was a goblin captain with a bow. Durin versus goblin captain with a bow. I came within two model, two leader kills of losing that matchup. So you talk about crazy, unfortunate experiences with Durin. Yeah, I've, I've had a few. Were these experiences against Ian, by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> He's over there grinning like. <laughs> okay, I think that has been our discussion today on well-rounded lists versus skewed lists. Thank you all for listening, and thanks to Marcus for coming on today to talk about this and also Duran and for sharing your lists. You can find all of our lists on Facebook. Just search Into the West Podcast. All of our lists are posted there. Thank you all for listening, and look forward to the next episode of Into the West Podcast. Mm-hmm.